church people who don't have it all figured out, and that's okay. And I'm just so glad that you guys are here, especially if this is your first time uh, this morning. I'm especially glad because we've been walking through this series uh, called Resonate in Three Parts. It's a really creative title. It took us a long time to come up with that. <laughs> uh, but basically, that means we're going through step-by-step, month-by-month, exactly who we are as a church, kind of unpacking our core statements. So if we have those slides, the first one uh, was all about what it means to not have it figured out, like how we can carry this faith in a way that's not like this, but it's like this, and we're open to the new experiences of God, because God is a really big thing. Uh, and then part two was for the part that, uh, for the people who hated part one, and part two was what we know for sure. And that was like, okay, for the people in the room who want something solid, here we go. Uh, so we went through things like goodness, and grace, and kingdom, and Holy Spirit, like these big core values that we hold uh, as Christians and believers in Jesus. And finally, and most importantly, I would say for our church, we're in part three right now, uh, which is no matter who you are, no matter who you are. And it's been a beautiful thing to walk through. It's been so awesome that we've actually extended it. So every other part of this was a month, and this has taken us through six weeks, and we're actually in the last week of it right now. We'll do some like kind of closing up stuff on Easter morning. Uh, but we're also going to keep that um, available to kind of launch into our next uh, series, which is really exciting. And I'll share a little bit about that. Um, our next series, we're actually we're calling it Conversations. And what we're going to do uh, is we have put together some panels, and we're going to have about four or five people on this stage, so it's not just going to be me talking all the time, uh, which is, might be a relief for some of us in the room. <laughs> uh, but we're going to put together like five people, and they're all going to be experts in a certain field. So we're going to do one uh, on uh, service, we're going to do one on politics, we're going to do one uh, on interdenominational like faith. So what does it mean to be an Episcopalian or a Lutheran or a resonator because we're our own deal. So <laughs> uh, we're going to kind of talk through these with these different priests and pastors uh, and see what we all have in common and see where we differ. And uh, it's going to be a cool space for us to actually explore things, ask questions. And so uh, with that, and we just spoke last week on what in, makes a good question and what makes a terrible question and all that good stuff. Uh, but we really want your questions. So I'm going to send out an email this week uh, that'll kind of outline the panels and what they're all going to be about. And then what we would love is to hear your questions for those panels. So if you have questions about different denominations, you have questions about uh, service in the community, uh, we're doing one where we're bringing in literally like Santa Monica leaders like in local government. And we're going to ask them straight up, like, what does Santa Monica need? Like, as a church community, what can we actually do being here, and how can we be a good neighbor to you guys? How can we be good news in this community? Uh, so if you have any questions for them, like, fire those off. But anyway, I'll give you an email this week uh, that will remind you, so be on the lookout for that, and do reply, because we're, uh, we're, like, you know, we'd love uh, your input, and we'd love to not be the ones asking all the questions. Uh, so I'm excited about that. That starts the week after Easter, uh, and it'll be fun. So we'll do one week of panel, and then the next week, I'll basically unpack what happened in the panel. If something went haywire or crazy, I'll bring us back sort of to true north and uh, hopefully won't lose my job over it. So that'll be good. <laughs> uh, so uh, let, me, let me just uh, pray for us. I, I want to leave space. Uh, this was a crazy, crazy week. Um, there's just so much going on in the world, uh, so much hurt, so much pain, so much violence. And actually, you know, we're going to talk a lot about violence and hurt and pain and what Jesus has to say about that. Because uh, Palm Sunday is this weird thing where we celebrate it, like if you get, there are churches, dozens of churches, probably a stone's throw from here, who are parading through with palms and they're going through the neighborhood and rah, rah, rah. Uh, and it's kind of like a very ironic holiday because it's the week before Easter and this is actually the week that we kind of got it all wrong. Like Palm Sunday is the week that like we ironically thought Jesus was going to be this one thing and then he turned out to be something totally radically uh, different. 
And so this morning, I want to celebrate Palm Sunday, and I want to kind of hold that it is an amazing tradition that we have in Christianity to look back on our past mistakes and go like, yeah, hey, there was this time where we thought it was this thing, but it's actually this. So we're going to celebrate that moment because it's going to bring us into a bigger reality. Uh, so let me, let me pray for us as we begin to talk about Palm Sunday. Lord, I am just so grateful uh, to be here this morning. I'm grateful that we have Bobby painting a palm tree uh, to remind us that it's Palm Sunday, and then we're going to get into just how uh, ludicrous and ludicrously awesome this day is in our Christian calendar. Um, Lord, I just pray for uh, humility and humbleness and authenticity and all the good stuff that's going to make us uh, who we are as a church and who we are as Resonate, and I just pray, uh, especially, Lord, just... um, that as we close this series, we really would walk out of here and walk into this next series, into this next phase of Resonate, understanding that we are a church for everyone, and that that's going to be difficult, that's going to be crazy, but uh, if we can hold that well, and that takes you, if we can hold that well, it's going to be beautiful. Amen. Um, So I have a really unique and innate ability to put my foot in my mouth when it comes to uh, really important people, and this morning I'm going to share with you three, well they're not actually important people at all, they're celebrities, so for some reason, whenever I see a celebrity, not all celebrities, but some celebrities, uh, I tend to say really dumb things, and it's actually, it's been great for my sermonizing career because it makes for a lot of great stories. I'm going to share three short stories with you uh, that are all going to paint me as a lunatic and fool, but we're going to do this, this is a practice in humility. So. I, uh, I, I used to live in Georgia for a brief time, and I worked at a Gap, so exciting moves in life. So I, I lived in Georgia, and I was working at a Gap, and I worked at this Gap, like it was before like, like the opening hours, uh, and I would kind of be in the shipping thing, and we would get all the, the, the shirts and everything, and we would uh, take them out, and uh, the guy who worked with me was actually the local rock DJ in Augusta, Georgia, so they're really paying him very well, because <laughs> he would come in and he would moonlight at Gap with me. Uh, but we got to be like kind of buds and close friends. He was like a really funny guy, so we would just kind of joke around the whole time. And he was like, hey, I got these tickets to this Killers show tonight. So this was like height like, of the Killers, like Brandon Flowers, all the hits, everything. Like, so it was like this really cool thing that he was offering me these tickets. I was like, sure, I'd love to go. So we go and we watch this Killers show in Augusta, Georgia, and there were maybe like 30 people that showed up. It was kind of a low point for them. Uh, but we got the opportunity to meet them because there was like, no one there. So he's like, hey, hang by this gate, and the band's going to come through, and we'll all get to meet him. We get, we're with a group of like five or six guys. And I'm at the back of the line as they're all kind of like shaking the lead singer, Brandon Flowers, like hand, like, oh, man, that was a great show, fun show, you know, using up all the good adjectives. And then I get to Brandon Flowers, and I go, killer show. <laughs> killer show. Like, the name of the band is Killers. And he literally looked at me like, you got to be kidding. And I was like, I, that was totally unintentional. And yeah, so I walked away feeling a little... Lesser. Uh, let's go to the second story. So I'm from Marin County, which is right across the bay from uh, San Francisco. So if you've gone over the Golden Gate Bridge or if you've seen a picture of the Golden Gate Bridge from a hill, that's Marin. Uh, and Marin is famous for a lot of things, but uh, the thing that was most intriguing to me as a young boy when we were told that we were going to be moving to this place, my parents said, well, you know, this is where Star Wars was made. And I was like, holy goodness, because I am like the biggest Star Wars nerd in the entire world. I had the special edition VHS tapes, and I very nearly wore them out. And I very nearly wore out the portion where George Lucas would sit on a stool. My stool's gone. Sit on a stool, and he would like kind of just have one, you know, one leg over, white New Balance sneakers, faded jeans, you know, scruffy beard, and he would explain how he created this magical, wonderful world that was Star Wars. And I would watch it over and over and over again. 
and so George Lucas kind of became my white whale. Like I wanted to see this guy so badly, never ran into him, and I'd hear stories. And Lucas Ranch is in Marin, so like that's where he literally works and lives, like all this kind of stuff. And uh, one night, I went to go see this really bad uh, sci-fi movie with my friends um, because I am the type of person that likes those extra three Star Wars that everyone gives crap to. Those are also some of my favorite movies of all time. So, yeah, I'm giving you a real window into my taste in movies. So I'm in this movie where there's no one there except for me and my buddy, and then there's this shadowy figure in the back, and my buddy like, kind of hits me on the elbow, and he's like, you've got to look behind you. I was like, it's so weird to look behind me. There's no one else in here. I kind of look behind me, and there he is in all of his VHS glory, like <laughs> sitting right behind me with the scruffy beard. It's George Walton Lucas Jr., which is his full name. Uh, and I look back, and I, I'm stunned. I can't pay attention to the bad sci-fi movie anymore. I'm just thinking in my head, like, George Lucas is right behind me. And we're walking outside uh, into the parking lot, and the only two cars in the parking lot are like right next to each other. It's my parents' Mercury Villager, and then it, which is a minivan, super cool. Uh, and then it was his G-Wagon. And I mean, he, to be fair, he parked right next to me. Like, we got there first, so this is on him. So we're walking, <laughs> we're walking together, and my friend is like, you gotta, like, you know, you gotta say something, like anything, just hi, or get a picture or something. I was like, no, 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 I don't wanna bug him, I don't wanna bug him. Remember, killer show had happened in my life, so I wasn't about to, like, step into this again. So, uh, we get to the car, and I'm like, no, no, I have to say something. So I like lift my head above the car, and he's getting into his uh, Mercedes G-Wagon, and he's about to shut the door, and I go, Mr. Lucas! First of all, Mr. Lucas, what in the heck? Mr. Lucas! And he looks up, and, uh, and I just go, good Star Wars! <laughs> good Star Wars. I actually told this story in a small group this week, so sorry if you're getting the repeat performance. But all right, good Star Wars. And I like kind of held my head low. He didn't say a word. He just kind of like, mm, and then got in his car. <laughs> Drove away. That was not the last time I would meet Mr. Lucas. So this brings us to the third and uh, final story, uh, which I think Good Star was probably the worst, so you're not in for a real big one here. But uh, I then worked at a Borders. So lots of these really awesome jobs. And Borders was the Barnes and Noble that never was. It failed. Um, and you're going to see why in a second. So George Lucas comes into Borders. There he is again. I'm like, oh my gosh, round two. I'm working in the DVD and uh, music section of Borders at this time, and he kind of comes up very quietly and just asks me, hey, would you mind uh, finding these DVDs for me? He gives me this list of all of these like obscure sci-fi DVDs. This is the guy that really does his homework. Um, and also, I'm in my head going like, he doesn't remember me, thank God. Like, this is a chance of redemption. So I go and I find all these DVDs, and I put them in a, a basket for him, and I hand it to him, and he's like, thank you, and I was like, yes. And I walk over, I get called to the register, and when you get called to the register, you have to like, you know, stand behind you, like check in, and I look up, and there he is again, and he's come to my register. And I was like, okay, don't screw this up. I'm ringing him up, and he's kind of like, you know, he's, he's flipping through like the, the books in front just so that no one is kind of a, a, available to talk to him. Um, and, you know, we're, we're kind of going back and forth. He makes a joke. He's like, long time no see. I was like, haha, nailed it. No verbal response back because I'm like, I'm not, I'm going to hold this tight. Uh, and then it's about, it's about that time that I realized that everyone in the borders is looking this direction because they all realize this is George Lucas too. And so the whole store's attention is on us, including my manager, who was like this really, really strict, nasty person. <laughs> and there was one rule at the register, and that one rule was that you either had to ask for their borders rewards card or you had to ask them to sign up for said Borders Rewards card. So I'm ringing it up and he hands his credit card forward and I feel the manager right here and I go, oh, uh, sir, 
would you like to sign up for our Borders Rewards card, which is all your personal information, like your address and your email address and all that kind of stuff. I'll just take that from you. Yeah, that's going to work. And he just looks at me and he like reinserts the credit card in my face. And I was like, oh man, I've done it again. <laughs> and so, so I got him out of there. Uh, George Lucas left not liking me once more. So uh, all of this has a point. And that point is that very often when we meet people and we build uh, people up that we haven't met, they don't meet our expectations. There's that, that classic line, like, don't meet your heroes. Because once you do, like, the, that luster wears away and you realize, oh, this is just a person. And they might, they might be a really pleasant surprise, or the, the result might be devastating. Might be like, oh my gosh, this is not who I thought this person was going to be. And what I learned with, uh, with George and Brandon Flowers of the Killers is that I wasn't who I expected to be in front of those people. Right? So I wasn't who I expected to be, and they weren't who I expected them to be, and that result was a whole day of me at Borders just being like, oh, <laughs> right? Or a whole day the next day just being like, oh man, I just can't believe that's what this is. And if we really look at what Palm Sunday is all about, like Palm Sunday is that feeling for a really large group of people. For the Jews at this time, when Jesus shows up, they're expecting one certain thing, something that's been prophetically announced for years to come. And when he shows up, it's just drastically drastically different. So uh, let, me, let me set the scene a little bit because I want to really dive into what it would have felt like on Palm Sunday. Uh, Jesus, uh, throughout the Gospels, all four Gospels, they're all kind of like a road trip. So Jesus is kind of moving towards Jerusalem. He starts in Galilee and he's like inching towards Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is going to be his stage. Like Jerusalem is the big part. It's so big that there's like 43% of the Gospel of John that is dedicated from Palm Sunday to the end of Passion Week, which results in resurrection. 43% of this story happens here. The stories of healing, stories of throwing over tables, which we're going to read about in a minute. Um, but all of these happen right after Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday is the very beginning. So I want to just like kind of place us in the shoes of someone at this time. If you were a Jewish person and you were in this area of the world, you would travel miles and miles and miles to be at Jerusalem during Passover. It was like the epic fever pitch moment of your religious life and your life, really. So you would come, you would come into the city. The city would be massively overcrowded. There were hundreds of thousands of people packed into this ancient city. Uh, and you would go to the temple because the temple was in Jerusalem. It wasn't just a temple. It was the temple. It's the temple built by Solomon. It's the second temple. And this is the core center of the religious faith at this time, the core center. This is essentially, for lack of a better term, this is where God lived for these people. This is where you could offer sacrifices and you could get atonement. This is how you could walk away and get rid of some of that shame and guilt. And this is a, this is a holiday that you might only make once in your lifetime to come to Jerusalem and experience this. So there's this, there's this feeling of like, oh my gosh, this is all electric. There's so many people and it's all overcrowded. It's like going to a city when the Super Bowl happens there. It's just like you can't get a hotel, can't get anything. It's just all like, like fever pitch. And even more so, on top of that, Passover brings up all sorts of feelings of rebellion and revolution and liberation because Passover is a celebration of when Moses, or God, used Moses to take the Israelites out of Israel, out of oppression, out of slavery. And if you're a Jewish person at this time, you are feeling that level of oppression. You're feeling that level of angst against this other empire that has now come onto the scene, which is Rome. So Rome would literally uh, tax the Jewish people into poverty. 
So Galilee, between Judea and Galilee, there's actually like a lot of money that would go through there. There was a great trade route. And so like the people in this area actually would have been pretty well off if it weren't for the Roman Empire coming in and taxing them into oblivion. So they would take high, high, high percentages of their income. And on top of that, the tax collectors, who are even worse, would show up at your door to collect those said taxes. And then they could pretty much rake you over the coals for whatever they wanted. They could take anything they wanted, any sum, any number, no matter if it was the percentage or not. They could walk up to your door and say, you owe me X amount, and you could be like, I don't, I actually owe you this, and then that would result in you being publicly shamed, thrown in prison, or worse. So these are people in abject poverty because of the government around them. The government is taking more than it is giving, and they're basically living in this servitude to Rome. It's not slavery. It's not what happened in Egypt, but the, this feeling of like, we have got to do something. My family is starving, and I don't have the money to do this, right? And then, so if you're coming into Passover, and the whole theme of the holiday is revolution, the whole theme of the holiday is liberation, we're getting out at last. Like, it would have been all people were talking about. That would have been the news that was humming in the air. And even more than that, got to combine this uh, with, with the government at that time, the, the soldiers could even like, walk up to you. You could be doing anything in the world. Like, I'm with my family. We're about to sit down to dinner. They could bust into your home and go, uh, you there, you need to walk a mile with me with my armor. So they just hand you the armor, and you would carry their armor for a mile. This is where we get that phrase, and this is what Jesus uses, actually, where it's go the extra mile. So it, it literally is you would walk with a Roman soldier carrying their bag and then for a mile, and then you would just have to give the stuff back. That's legally how far they could take you. That's like, if they did any more than that, then they would actually face punishment and persecution. So what Jesus is saying is like, don't reply violently to this act. Actually walk that extra mile because that puts the liability on the soldier. Oh, you want to, I'll walk a mile. Now I'm going to walk another mile and you're going to get in trouble for this, right? It's, it's this really subversive third way of thinking where it's not violence and it's not revolution and it's not this, this like ugly act back, but no, it's something way, way bigger, way deeper. And if they can lock into this way of revolution, things are really going to work out. So you have an oppressive government, you have a bunch of people all crammed into a city, and you have a government that would have been patrolling this city to make sure things don't get out of hand. Things would have been real, real tense between the Romans and the Jews at this point because they realized, like, at any minute here, we could have ourselves an uprising. And so we got to keep this under control. And this is what Jesus rolls into in a very dramatic way, which we'll talk about um, in a second. So Herod, who was the local, like, representative of Rome, he would have been, like, the local king in terms of where the, uh, the Romans had placed him. And every time he would roll into Jerusalem, and very likely he would have rolled into Jerusalem during this Passover time just as a show of force and fear. And when he did, he would ride in on this massive white horse with a bunch of soldiers, weapons all drawn. So the weapons would not be holstered. This was not a peaceful act. They would walk through the streets with trumpets ablazing in this huge show of power and fear with their weapons drawn as a symbol of like, don't step out of line. This is the procession that would have happened for the Roman government. This is the show of power and of fear. What we're going to learn is that Jesus flips that on its head and does something radically uh, different with that. So combine this fever pitch, this moment of like, with these stories that you've been hearing about this guy from Nazareth. If you're a Jew coming into Jerusalem 
chances are you're going to be talking about the struggle that you're going through. This is what I had to go through this year. Oh my gosh, this is what I had to go through this year. I just need to get to the temple to worship because this is what I'm dealing with. This is what I went through this year. And then chances are someone, because this guy was making a huge buzz, someone would go like, hey, have you heard about this guy, Jesus? And then they would talk and they'd be like, he's, he's healing the sick. He's even like, he's, he's healed lepers and he's, he's giving sight to blind people. And he's like, he's turning religion on its head. Even the best teachers in the world can't step up to this carpenter. He's even raising people from the dead. And so all of this begins to click. And in the minds of these Jewish people, they go, wait a minute, this is Jerusalem. This is the holy city. This is the city that prophets have been claiming for thousands of years that the Messiah is going to come here and that this is going to be the final act. This is where you're going to get liberation and freedom. And they're putting things together and they're going like, wait a minute, if we've got this guy who can raise people from the dead, heal the sick, give sight to the blind, then what could he do to the Romans, right? If you think about it this way, it's almost like they've got themselves a superpower on their hands. They've got themselves a superman who's going to set them all free because you have to remember in the Passover tradition, what happened? Moses comes in to Egypt and, uh, and literally puts plagues upon the people. God's power is used in an almost violent way. There are 10 plagues and then the final one, they literally take the life of the firstborn son of every Egyptian there. And that's what eventually leads the Pharaoh to say, fine, go. And then they do go and they cross the Red Sea and then God literally uses his power to put the waters back over the Egyptian army that's chasing them and wipe them all out. The view at this point is that violence is the only option because that's the last way we got out of this. When we remember Passover, we remember a God who acts in that way. And we want that so badly because I want my problems fixed right now. And so when Jesus rolls in, my goodness, you have a group of people who are expecting miracles. You have a group of people who are expecting outright liberation. And so when he rolls in, he comes in on a donkey which is like absolutely absurd. It was actually a colt, so it's a tiny donkey. So it's almost hysterical. Like you would have been like, <laughs> uh, and it was almost hysterical until the point that you realize that a donkey, a baby donkey is about that size and where he would have been sitting would have been eye level with all of you. And so when he rolls through this city, he is on the level of the person, not in some big white horse with his weapons drawn and trumpets ablazing. He's on a tiny donkey looking right into your eye as a symbol of peace. And so what the people do, it's a sign of royalty, they took palm branches and their coats, and so they'd literally take off their coats and they would lay it in front of this colt so the colt wouldn't even have to touch the ground that it was walking on. And they did the same with palm branches. And it's like, at first, this is a royal maneuver, right? So this is like what they would do to Herod as well. But this has a, like a really cool sort of backhanded tinge to it. That palm tree, or the palms, would have been on every single coin in the Roman Empire. That was the symbol of Rome's power and wealth. And what they're doing is they're placing that symbol of power and wealth underneath this cult that Jesus is riding on and it is being trampled on. <laughs> so it's saying this power and this wealth that this, this oppressive force has, has had its time, but we are now going to experience redemption. We're going to experience what this guy Jesus is going to do. And there aren't any trumpets either, but all of a sudden, some of the people in the crowd start chanting this. So we have that scripture, Noah. Say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
uh, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And they would also exclaim, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And that seems like really cool and really like outlandishly awesome until you realize that uh, this, is, this is a really significant text. You see, this text is actually called the Hallel. Everyone say that, the Hallel. The Hallel, good. So that's H-A-L-L-E-L, uh, Hallel. And what that basically meant was that Hallel was a prayer that would be prayed over Passover or any other significant, joyous uh, occasion in the Jewish faith. This was the thing that was like a rallying call. Hello, we experienced redemption and victory, and we're going to get out of Egypt. And so they're exclaiming this, going like, this is our Messiah, Hallel. This is the person that's going to come and redeem us. And because of this, Jesus does a really interesting thing. He weeps. He actually cries in the face of all this stuff. See, the, the whole procession happens, and these people are chanting Hallel. And six days later, they're not going to be chanting Hallel. They're going to be chanting, crucify him. So how did we get in six days from him rolling in, and he's everyone's best friend, everyone wants to follow him. I'm going to even, like, throw my coat down on the ground for his donkey to trample over, to now, six days later, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And I think the core reason is that he didn't meet the expectation that they wanted. He didn't immediately solve that problem that they needed, and as a result, they turned on him on a dime. So let's read, um, read this scripture here. This is going to give a good picture. This is literally after they've come through, and they'd be marching down the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem, and Jesus stops as he sees the city in its full like account. He stops, and he weeps. So let's read what this says. It says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And said, if you even, he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you and in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. That's some dark stuff. <laughs> Right? Jesus takes a real dark turn. They're all like, hello, hello, hello. And then you just see Jesus. And when Jesus only weeps in public twice. The first time is at the death of his friend Lazarus, in which it says he, he is moved to tears by the love of Lazarus' his sister. And so he weeps. But this is described in a totally different sense. This weeping is more attuned to like out of control crying. Can't catch my breath crying. And it puzzled me to all get out why Jesus, like, is, this is a really victorious moment. This is a huge moment. Why does he stare at this Jerusalem and weep? Why does he cry? And at first read, what he's saying doesn't sound very compassionate at all. So we need to do some context to figure out what he's really, really talking about here. He's not just saying, like, because you didn't believe in me, now I'm going to wipe out your whole city. This is not something Jesus or God is going to do but this is something that the powers that be are going to do, and Jesus is weeping over that with the people. So in the, the um, year 70 CE, it's just a couple decades after this is happening, uh, Rome will roll in and destroy that entire city, ransack it to the ground, including pulling apart the temple, which was the core of their religious faith. They would burn it to the ground and almost symbolically rip it apart brick by brick to then kind of tell the Jewish people, your God cannot save you, and your God is dead. 
That's the message that it was sending. It was heavy, heavy, heavy stuff. And to the reader of Luke, which this passage comes out of, this is fresh. This isn't history. You would have known someone who would have passed away. You would have, you would have had to have fled your home. You would have known someone who had to have fled their home. And, and then on top of that, you would have had this extreme identity crisis in your religion because this temple was the center of everything. This is where I was supposed to go for atonement. This is where I was supposed to go for sacrifice, and now that's gone. So what does that mean? Because God didn't intervene. We didn't get literally saved. Rome won. So what does that mean? And it all comes down to the kind of revolution that Jesus was planning. And when he sees this temple, he realizes that everyone here, front and back, and in the moment, these readers, no one understands that a violent act is not going to help. That this revolution that you want me to be a part of, that you're hoping that I'm going to engage and lead you in, is only going to lead to things like this, because that's exactly what happened. So a couple years after Jesus leaves the scene, a group called the Maccabees rise up, and they revolt against, the, and the Maccabees are a, a sect of zealous Jews, and so they rise up and they revolt against Rome, and as a result, Rome absolutely crushes them, not just in a little way. Over 600,000 people died. 600,000 people. It's women and children, innocent people. 600,000 lives are taken because Jewish people decided we're gonna, we can't take this anymore. And we have to do the uncomfortable job of kind of putting ourselves in their shoes because if my family is starving because of the taxes that you're putting on my family and when your tax collector shows up and I'm like, like literally being robbed in pure daylight, I'm gonna wanna do something too, right? Some action has to happen, we have to do this. But the revolution that Jesus was offering was far more subversive and it was nothing, nothing to do with violence. Because a violent act only begets a violent act. There is no stopping, it's just, when, when you are in a dialogue of violence, the only vocabulary you have is hurt. And so when hurt enters the scene, the biggest thing you can do, your biggest hope in that moment, is that I can knock them down so hard that they will not get up again. I can hurt them so badly that we can put an end to this. But that almost never happens. What happens is that history just keeps repeating itself. We knock one group down, and then that group 20, later, 20 years later, like the Jewish people, the Maccabees, rise up because they've been knocked down so far. So what have they learned from the Romans? It's violence they respond to, so let's give them violence. And they go in, and they give them violence, and then they figure out that, oh, goodness, we have awoken a sleeping giant, and then this Rome comes in and just wipes them all out because violence only begets more violence. And we're seeing this right now. This isn't old. This is still fresh for us. Violence begets more violence. I, I, uh, I was reading this, it's like an Irish uh, philosopher, his name is Patrick, uh, Patrick Otume? Patrick Otume. Uh, and he has this poem that he reads uh, because we get so like we get so blinded. Like when I say six hundred thousand people, that's it. That's immense. But so are the hundred some that just happened in Syria. So are like this morning, two churches were bombed on Palm Sunday, and the number was like thirty six people the last time I caught it. And these numbers just get they wear on us. Like oh thirty six, and I literally had this moment where I was like thirty six. That's not as bad as it could have been. That's not as bad as it could have been. So I'm I'm always reminded of this poem that. Um, that Patrick uh, states, and it, it says, 
Uh, when I was young, I learned to count. One, two, three, four. But now, in the face of violence and oppression, I've learned to count lives. So I count one, 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 one. The coolest part about Palm Sunday is that Jesus literally looks at this symbol that is Jerusalem, this city that is about to go through the most horrific destruction that this group of people has ever witnessed. And he looks at it and he weeps. Because every one of those people matters to him. He stares into that whole picture and just goes, oh, I'm with you. To the reader in Luke, at that historical time, I'm with you, I see you, and I'm weeping with you. That's the beauty of Jesus. I haven't studied a whole lot of other religions, but I'm pretty sure that a God that weeps with you is pretty Christian. It's a really unique picture of what God does. And if I just left that with just, he weeps with you, it'd be really pretty and awesome and beautiful. But it's not just the weeping. Jesus actually goes into action after this. He weeps. He says, I see you, I feel your pain, and I'm with you in that pain. This is not from me, but I see it, and it hurts me. But now, I'm going to act on your behalf, and it's going to look nothing like you thought it would, but it's going to give you so much more life down the line. And so what he does, everybody, again, we're wondering, where's he going to go? Right? He's just weeped. We're at Jerusalem. Is he headed toward town hall? Right? Or is he going to go to, uh, to, the, to the courts? Is he going to go find Herod? Are we headed to Herod? Are we going to go like rally up a bunch of troops and are we going to go over there? And Jesus does this strange beeline right to the temple. So instead of the politics of it all and going after the political leaders and going after Rome, he goes straight into the religious center of his own people. That's the thing that he's going to overturn. So let's read that, uh, that passage. Uh, Jesus, it says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my horse, or my house, my horse. He didn't have a horse. My house will be called a house of prayer. Uh, but you are making it into a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So this is where Jesus springs into action. And it's at the temple. So this is going to be like the nerdiest thing I've ever done, but I'm going to turn to a visual aid here. Do we have that picture of the, uh, the temple? Okay, this is where we're going to get. I wish I had a laser pointer. Um, so Jesus would have come up from this direction, right? Uh, and the temple at that time was really deeply segregated and divided, and it was really, like, it was a rough scene. So basically, you have the court of the Gentiles, which is the only place that Gentiles are allowed in the temple, non-Jewish people. And then in, if you wanted to go in the temple, you had to do a couple things. You had to make a sacrifice, you had to atone, all that good stuff. And so what the priests decide is that, hey, wait a minute, we've got people traveling in from all over the place. So we can create a system here that they can buy their sacrificial animal and we'll also have a currency exchange. So you can literally come in here with your currency or whatever it is and you can exchange it for a temple currency and then you can use that temple currency like tokens at the temple. It's like a Chuck E. Cheese. You can use that temple currency to literally buy your way into atonement. And Jesus goes bonkers over this. 
And it's not just because of the financial thing. He's not just mad that the church put a trendy coffee shop in it. Uh, he's mad that this was the only space. This is where they put that market. This is where you would have bought your atoning dove or whatever it was or exchanged your money. This was the only place that market existed in the court of the Gentiles. And in the temple system, the court of the Gentiles was the only evangelical or uh, not evangel um, evangelizing point in the entire faith. This was the only space that if you were curious about this God, you could come in and ask a priest and you could go like, who, you know, what is this all about? What are you guys doing? Tell me the story of your God. I want to hear this. And so they would tell the story of God. And then like literally sometimes it would lead to all out conversion. And these people would go, I believe that God. I believe in that God that loves. I believe in that God that saves. I want a piece of that. But what the priests and the Pharisees did at the time was create that only space that they had to encounter this living God and turned it into a, a marketplace. And so when Jesus rolls in, and this is very important because he spends all the rest of his six days here during the day teaching, healing the sick, healing the blind. What Jesus does is he returns the temple to its natural order. He says, no, this is not going to be a den of robbers. This is going to be the space where anybody is welcome and anybody can come into and they can learn about God. That's what's vitally, vitally important to me. It's not who's in, who's out. In fact, the only time I'm going to show you a shred of violence, which is throwing over these tables, is because this is the only space that matters here. This is where people come to know God. We have to protect that space, and I love what he does, because any of us can tear apart our faith, right? Any of us can tear the building down. There's a huge, I think it's, it's a, a generational thing too. People in my generation love to tear things apart and just like go like, well, that system is blah, and just kind of like throw the whole thing down. It's very, very simple for someone to walk into a church and start criticizing and going this, 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 don't like this, don't like this, don't like this, tear it down, get it all out of my face. It takes a really unique and special person, though, to be able to come from that position and rebuild the faith. It takes a special heart to want to rebuild after you've tor like, torn everything down. And what Jesus does here is, yes, he throws over those tables and he says, like, this isn't the way that it should be, and I'm going to like get in here. But he also says, I'm going to rebuild it and I'm going to show you the way that it should I'm going to do the hard work after tearing it down to show you that this is a place of healing, this is a place of community, and this is a place of teaching. So, as we approach the communion table, I hope you guys will stand and just sort of ponder that palm tree, this symbol that, like, we don't always get it right. And our expectation of God isn't always right on and correct, but we have a God that's big enough to trust us in the grand story. We have a God that's big enough to walk us through. And as we go through this week, we get to Easter. We get to resurrection. So next week is going to be a party, and we're going to talk about um, different stages of the butterfly, which sounds trite right now. But literally, Bobby's going to be painting three different stations, and I'm going to move with her from each station. So we're going to do the ground, the struggle, which is the cocoon, to flight, which is freedom. So we'll start here, and I'll just like work my way across, and Bobby will too, and we're still figuring out if that's going to work. <laughs> but uh, hopefully it will. Anyway, as you approach the communion table, please uh, just spend some time um, contemplating that. Let me pray for us as we, as we go. God, thank you so much for this space. I'm grateful for Palm Sunday and the beautiful picture that it paints of your compassion 
and your love for us. Um, Lord, I, I just pray uh, that this week you would compel us to see you for who you are and not who we would really, really love for you to be. And I just pray over these people in this space, in this church, um, Lord, just uh, bless us. Amen.